you please turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians. We'll be looking at chapter 13 today. That's found on page 959 and 960 if you're using the few Bibles. For the past uh, two weeks, we have been looking at chapter 12, which is about spiritual gifts. And we've seen that the Holy Spirit grants each and every Christian specific spiritual gifts. And there's a wide variety of gifts. And no single Christian, no single church, no single denomination has all the gifts. They are granted to the universal church collectively. And these gifts are given by the Holy Spirit for one purpose. That's the common good. They are given to build up the church, to build each other up. And what that means is to make each one of us more like Christ, more like the image of Christ. And the problems with the Corinthians, not unlike the problem with our modern churches, the Corinthians wanted the gifts themselves. They saw the gifts for their own personal benefit, their own personal recognition, their own personal glory. But it was even worse than this. They wanted these most visible gifts, and they wanted the ones that most were clearly displayed supernatural power, and they looked down on anyone who was gifted differently. They despised those who had less visible gifts. They didn't even recognize their, their value. And this attitude caused divisions in the church. And after this entire chapter on spiritual gifts, uh, the purpose of the gifts, the variety of the gifts, the value of the gifts, after this, Paul ends this chapter with these words. He says, and I will show you a still more excellent way. As I mentioned last week, chapter 12 was really just preliminary. It was really setting the stage for the more excellent way. Uh, It was an introduction to what we're going to be looking at today. So 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Hear now the word of the Lord. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. We know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So faith, hope, and love abide. These three But the greatest of these is love. Let's pray. Father, we again praise you for your word. We praise you, Father, for this truth that we read. And Father, I pray for your spirit to be with me. Father, that I will proclaim your word boldly and accurately and faithfully. And I pray for each one of us here that we will hear from you, that we will be changed. We will be changed by this encounter more to the image of your son, Jesus Christ, It's in his name and for his glory that we pray. Amen. Well, this chapter, 1 Corinthians 13, this was actually probably one of the first 
Bible passes that I had even read, ever read. And this was when, 31 years ago now, when Lynn and I were preparing for our wedding, the minister gave us a list of readings. And we didn't even own a Bible. And the minister said, pick out the ones you want. We had to borrow a Bible. We looked up a couple of the, uh, a couple of the verses. And, and I don't know about you, but the first time I tried to look up books, this Bible, you know, if you're used to it, it seems simple. But for me, it was completely confusing. It was like they, all the books seemed the same. I was looking for Corinthians. I found Chronicles. Uh, I was wondering why is there's first. Why why don't they have unique names? Why do they have to have first, second, third? Like John was the worst. I was like John, first John, second John, third John. I didn't know where I was. It was the hardest thing finding these passages. But then finally we stumbled upon First Corinthians 13, and we liked it. We said, "Ooh, this is good." And I remember even one time going to a uh, I was with a relative. We were in a store, and they, they saw 1 Corinthians 13. They said, oh, that's a great poem. I love that poem. We even know it was in Scripture. But we love this thing. And I think this is probably the most often used Scripture uh, that we see in weddings. They always have it. People who aren't even Christians love this, and they use this in weddings. But 1 Corinthians 13 is not about marriage. It's not about a wedding. It's not about some generic and, and amorphous love. This chapter is given within a specific context, and that context is the spiritual gifts. Gifts that are used by the church. And yes, it could have a, a wider context, a wider application, but we need to understand this original context. And chapter 13 is tightly connected with chapter 12. And it describes this still more excellent way of using and, and thinking about our spiritual gifts. And it highlights certain misuses that we can have on these, these gifts and, and the divisions that are caused by the misuse of these gifts that were really what plagued the Corinthian church. And I think this chapter really hits at the heart of the Corinthian problem, and not just in chapter 12, but the entire book. I think these 13 verses in this 13th chapter really provide the solution that if it was internalized, would solve pretty much all the problems that we have seen so far, and we will see in this book of 1 Corinthians. So what we're going to do is we are going to look at this still more excellent way and see what Paul is telling us. So the first lesson that we see here, this first thing that Paul shows about the still more excellent way, is that love is an essential ingredient in the use of any of the spiritual gifts. Love is an essential ingredient in the use of any of the spiritual gifts. And we see this in the first three verses. Verse 1 says, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. See, the gift of tongues, this was one of the most prized gifts by the Corinthians. This was one of the glorious ones. This is one of the covenant visible gifts. It showed the supernatural power of God. And this is one that they all wanted. This is one that was causing many of the divisions in the church. And what Paul is saying is that you could even speak in the most impressive manifestation of these tongues. You can not only speak in one other language, you can speak in all the languages of men, the tongues of men. And even better than that, you not only speak in tongues of men, but even the supernatural tongues of of, uh, language of angels. And he said this would be a supreme display of the gift of tongues, the most visible, the most one coveted. And Paul is saying that you can display the supreme manifestation of the most precious gift. And if it's exercised apart from love, it is not only useless, it is worse than useless. And what is the purpose of the spiritual gifts? Paul tells us in the thesis verse in chapter 12, 12, uh, verse 7, that to each is given the manifestation of the, of the Spirit for the common good. 
So the gifts are given for the common good. They are given to build up the church. They are given for the edification of believers. They are given to make individual Christians more like Christ. That is the purpose. They are to conform our character to the character of Christ. And this is the purpose of every single spiritual gift that we have. And Paul is saying that you can have this most amazing gift of tongues in men, but if it's exercised apart from love, rather than imparting edifying wisdom and knowledge to the church, it actually subjects the church to this deafening noise of an unbearable irritation of a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal. I mean, just think, of any of you who had children who had drum set, you know what this sounds like. You know, bang, 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 all this noise, this deafening noise that you want to hear. That's what it sounds like if you're talking in tongues and you're doing without love. This is exercising this gift of tongues apart from love. In verse 2, Paul describes all the supernatural visible gifts that are given to build up the church. He says, and if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. So there's absolutely no benefit to even the most impressive, the most supernatural gift apart from love. He says, if I exercise these most impressive gifts apart from love, I am nothing. Now, he's not saying that gifts won't work. He's not saying that you won't see the gifts. They actually will work. They will be flashy. They will get people's attention. They'll draw attention, but not to God. They will draw attention to the self, to the ministry, to the person. And these gifts will not accomplish their purpose. They will not glorify God. They will not build up the church. Again, the purpose is for the common good. The purpose is to build up the church, to make people more like Christ. And apart from love, they will not achieve that purpose. In fact, they will have the opposite effect. Instead of drawing people to Christ, they will push them away. Instead of building people up, it will tear people down. You may have heard in the news there's, there's many megachurches, and, and there's far, far too many megachurches, prosperity gospel churches, charismatic churches, and it's, uh, sadly there's far too many to, to, to even name and number that display lots of energy. They have lots of baptism. Many people think they're doing the kingdom work. They boast about what they're doing. But if you look behind the scenes... Or if you wait after a while and you see all the leadership scandals when they become public, you realize that the work is not being done out of love. It's being done for eco. It's being done for pride. It's being done for profit. And these gifts and these ministries, they don't build people up. Actually, they tear people down. And if you talk to people who've been involved in them, you see the damage that you. Many of them even leave the church because of the damage that is done in these ministries. And this is not just, this is not just a problem for, for people who are in leadership. It's not just a problem for pastors. This lack of love is a, is a, can affect each one of us, regardless of what our gifting is. It can affect those who serve quietly behind the scenes, those who are Martha, re, resenting Mary for not doing what they're doing. And even great sacrifice, if it's done without love, if it's done with a, an angry, resentful spirit, you know, a, no one helps me, no one appreciates what I do, it will bring no benefit. Look at verse 3. It says, if I give away all I have, I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. And there's a, tempt, a temptation for us to want to be martyrs, to want attention for our sacrifice. And then when we don't get that attention, we get resentful because people don't recognize the, the sacrifice that we've made. My friends, people will never recognize your sacrifice. They'll never. If you're serving Christ, you're serving others in his name, you will seldom get recognition by those you serve. 
But we don't do our works before men to get recognition from men. We do our works before Christ to get the reward from Christ. I mean, I doubt, I doubt that Elias in the, in, in the morning, when he wakes you up at three in the morning, screaming and crying, he's thankful for the, for the sacrifice that you all are making when you get up. No, he's, he doesn't thank you at all. He just feels entitled. And, and you're not doing it for, you're not doing it for uh, the recognition for his thank you. You do because you love the little squish, right? You love the guy. <clears throat> well, service done without love is of no value to us. And not only does it make us miserable, it ultimately is not even helpful to the person for whom the sacrifice is made because the resentment will eventually cause bitterness. Bitterness in a relationship, it will instill a, a feeling of indebtedness. And ultimately, the person's purpose, person won't even want the help. They will do them no good. And this lack of love displays that we are not really serving. We're not sacrificing for the other person. We're actually doing it for ourselves, for our own ego, for our own pride, for, for our own benefit. And love, love is an essential ingredient in any Christian service. And if the service is done or the gift is used apart from love, it will not accomplish its goal. It will not serve the common good. It will not build up other people. <clears throat> and we see the importance of love. But what is love? What does it look like? And sadly, love has been one of those words that's been hijacked. It's been hijacked by our anti-God culture. See, the culture will tell us that love is telling another person what they want to hear. Love is affirming another person, celebrating a lifestyle or a decision that blatantly opposes God's word, his revealed will. And this will not help a person. This will actually lead to greater misery and greater heartache in this life. And ultimately, if it's not repented of, it will lead to eternal destruction. My friends, this is not loving. This is the most hateful thing we can do for another person, to affirm them in their sin, to affirm them in their rebellion against God. <clears throat> it is truly the most hateful thing for us to Christians to do, to an unbeliever, is to fail to warn them, to fail to warn them of the <clears throat> precarious state they're in. And this is true for even so-called good people, because every single one of us, every single one of us who is not a new creation in Christ is in the same situation, same desperate situation. See, they're enemies of God, and they're on the path of destruction. <clears throat> eternal and unbearable destruction. But it doesn't need to be this way. God has provided a solution. God has graciously provided a way of escape. And we know that solution. As Christians, we have that solution. As Christians, we are charged with providing that solution. That solution is the gospel. The fact that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to suffer the penalty of our rebellion in our place on the cross. And Jesus suffered God's just wrath against every single sin of every single person who would eventually put their trust in him. And the gospel tells us that God makes this transfer. God makes this transfer. He takes our sin and places it on Christ and it's punished in Christ on the cross. He takes Christ's righteousness and gives it to us and it's rewarded in us with everlasting life. This is the gospel. And this is what we're called to do. We are called to proclaim this truth to the lost. And this, my friends, is the most loving thing that we can do. So brothers and sisters, do not let, do not let the anti-God culture define love for you. We must look <clears throat> to God's word. And we see here in verses 4 through 7, Paul gives us a description of the characteristics of biblical love. 
And it says, verse 4, love is patient and kind. That's a hard one for me, patient and kind. See, a patient person can wait. A patient person doesn't need to have everything in their control, every situation to their satisfaction at this very moment. And again, patience is hard for me because I want what I want when I want it. But love can wait. It can trust God's timing. It trusts God's wisdom. God's wisdom to overrule my immediate desires for the moment. And the person displaying this biblical love understands that much sanctification occurs while we wait, while we undergo the process to get what we so desperately desire. And notice that it says love is patient and kind. So it's so easy for us to get irritable, to get anxious while we're waiting, especially if we're not getting what we want at this moment. And we become preoccupied. We become focused while we're waiting. And we want that. We're single-minded on what we want. And we cease to to be kind. We cease to to even recognize those who are around us. We become oblivious to them. We cease to, to show even common courtesy, to acknowledge their existence, to treat them with dignity and respect. I know when I'm running late, it's really difficult for me to be kind because I'm focused. I've got to get there. And, I, and I'm really just doing it because I want to look good. I want to, to look good. I want to be there on time so everyone knows that, I, that I'm on time. And, and, and oftentimes I'm irritable with anyone who might slow me down in this process. I'm focusing what I want in the moment. And not only is being patient and kind a characteristic of biblical love, it can also show, show as a, a litmus test. It can show if the service we are doing, is it truly for God? Is it truly done out of love? Or is it coming from pride? Is it one? Is it to build up my ego? And I saw this just a few weeks ago. I was invited to give the, the benediction at Albany State University convocation. And I didn't really know what that meant, so I, I contacted the person who emailed me on the public relations staff. I said, well, what do you need? She said, well, you can do whatever you want. I said, well, I don't know. What, what do I need? So she said, well, you could, you could do whatever you want. I said, well, you want me to do a prayer? She said, well, that would be great. So I was expecting to be, give a prayer. And I get there, and there's a couple hundred people there, and, and they had two parts of it. The first part, was I wasn't involved, but the second part was a graveside service. And I looked at the, the program, and I was the only one on the program. And not only was it a prayer, I had an invocation, I had a message, and I had, a, uh, and I had to do a, a benediction. So I didn't have anything prepared. So I'm like, okay, um, I'm, you know, I've, I'm going to put something together. So I'm, I'm thinking, so I'm sitting there on the side, and a couple minutes before it started, and I'm starting to go in my mind what I'm going to say. And this nice elderly gentleman, an ASU alumni, comes up and sits next to me. And he starts chatting, he's telling me about things, and, and you know, I'm like, I really want to prepare this. But I start listening to him. He's a very, very nice guy. And I'm listening to him, I'm talking to him. And he's telling me about his son, who's an engineer, and about when he was at ASU in the 70s and what's going on. And at this point, I said, Lord, you're going to have to give me the speech. Because I just sat there and I started talking to the guy the whole time. And he was, again, he was a really, really nice guy. And the speech went fine. I don't really remember what I said. It had a lot of Jesus in it. And I figured that was good. Um, but I, and I think the guy was surprised when I stood up to be the speaker as he was sitting there talking to me the whole time. But it went fine. And, and I need to say, was I going to be impatient with this man? Was I going to be unkind to this man who God brought to here just so I could have a few more moments to, to, to prepare so I would look good? I just had to trust the Lord would give me what I needed at this time. See, it was, it was my ego. I wanted to look good versus being kind to the person that God had put in my path at that moment. The next characteristics we see of biblical love here is love does not envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. See, envy is one of the, really the most destructive sins for the Christian. See, envy is when we, we despise something, when we hate something, something good, something God-glorifying, something that builds up God's people as a church. 
And the only reason we hate it is it's done by someone else. And it's not done by us. And really this sin opposes God. And it, and it robs God of his glory. Because we think we should be getting the glory. And boasting really is, is, is the opposite side of the same sin. Boasting is taking credit for the work God does through us. Saying, I've done it. I've done it through me when it's really been through God. See, the work is done by God, whether it's done by someone else or by us. And boasting is taking God's credit for ourselves, and envy is despising God's work done in another because it's not done by us. Both of them steal God's glory. Both of them are sins against God. And neither of these sins, envy and boasting, these are, neither of these are characteristics of biblical love because they focus on us, not on God. They seek our benefit, not the common good. They seek to build up our ego and not build up others in Christ. And being rude, being rude is basically the opposite of being kind, which we saw before. It's a failure to show courtesy. It's a failure to show dignity and respect toward others. Being rude is a failure to be kind. And really, there is no excuse for a Christian to be rude. It's unloving. And many people will confuse this. Many people say, well, I'm rude because I, I want to focus on the truth. I think that's a lie. Whereas love never compromises the truth. We, we definitely will see this later. But biblical love requires that we speak truth with kindness. We're never to mock a person. We're never to belittle a person. We're never to, to fail to show dignity and respect and kindness toward another person. And it's not that they deserve it in themselves. They don't deserve respect. I don't deserve respect. It's because they're made in the image of God. That is what we're respecting, the image of God that we see in them. Even people we disagree with, even people we vehemently disagree with, they deserve respect and kindness. Now, that doesn't mean that the people are going to like the truth. Many times they'll be offended by the truth. They may think that that's the very fact that you speak truth is, is being rude. That's not the same thing. See, God's word is offensive enough. We don't need to add to it. That's going to, that's going to offend people. If we, if we share God's word, we share the gospel, that will offend people enough. We don't need to mock them. We don't need to add to it. Next, we see that love does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. And all of these things are related to pride. The prideful, unloving attitude is more concerned with what I want than what God wants. The Christian displaying Christian love is, is not to insist on his own way, but he is to insist on God's way. In the, in the play uh, Newsies that uh, David was in last week, I remember there was a line that I liked. It said, a boss doesn't need to come up with the best idea. He just needs to recognize it when he hears it. And that's great advice for if any of you who are, who are bosses. But I think it's also good for a Christian as well. The Christian doesn't always need to know God's plan, but he just needs to recognize it when he, when he sees it. He doesn't have to come up with it himself. He just needs to recognize it. See, the proud person doesn't do that. The proud person only cares about getting my way. I don't care what God's way is. This is what I want. This is my agenda. This is what I'm going to focus on. But the person displaying Christian love is not irritable, is not resentful when his plans are not accepted. He's trusting in God. And even, even if he doesn't understand how God has worked, he trusts in God's sovereignty. And even that protects the Christian from, from being irritable and resentful in these situations. We know that God is sovereign. We know that God will work it out somehow. We now come to verse 6. And I think understanding this verse, I think this is the key to having a, a biblical definition of love. And it's, a characteristic of, it's this characteristic of love that I think the anti-God culture will reject in its new definition of the word love. Look at verse 6. It says, Love does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. And wrongdoing and truth 
We find that out from Scripture. Scripture tells us, not, not our feelings, not what the culture tells us. Scripture tells us what's wrong. Scripture tells us what's truth. And true biblical love will not rejoice in anything the Bible calls sin, anything the Bible says is wrong. In fact, love will oppose this. Love knows that encouraging and improving any sin of anything the Bible calls bad is not loving, but rather is hateful. And as Christians, we are never to be afraid of the truth. Scripture tells us we are, we are people of the truth. We know the truth. The truth will set us free. And love rejoices in the truth. We are people of the truth. So we never shy from the truth. God's word is truth. Verse 7 completes Paul's description of biblical love with <clears throat> love bears all things, love believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. See, love never compromises. It doesn't compromise when things get tough. Love is not pragmatic. Love is called to bear burdens, bear heavy burdens, <clears throat> bear other people's burdens. And people might say, well, that's not fair. You know, there are oftentimes, out of love, you, you find yourself in situations that you don't want to be in. And you're like, well, how did I get it? This is not fair. And you want to say, it wasn't fair for Christ to be on the cross. That wasn't fair either. We are called to imitate our Savior. And that means we are to, to bear burdens. Love must endure, voluntarily endure, trials and pains for the sake of those we beloved. And my friends, the bar is extremely high. The, the bar for biblical love, for the still more excellent way, is exceedingly high. The anti-God culture has distorted and cheapened the concept of biblical love. And as you're thinking about this, it's clear that biblical love is impossible for us to achieve on our own. It's only possible through the Holy Spirit. It's only possible for a new creation in Christ. If you're not a new creation, if you're a natural man, you cannot live like this. Only the new man, only the one who has been been born again by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone is able to do this, is given the Holy Spirit. Only the Christian, through the power of the Holy Spirit, has any hope of loving like this. But even Christians, even Christians, born-again Christians, can only love like this, not in ourselves, but by relying on the supernatural power of the Holy Spirit. And to do this, we must believe all things that God promised in his word. And we must hope all things and trust and wait for God to enable in us what only he can do. And this still more excellent way, this, this is a terrifying adventure lived by faith and hope. That is, that is the Christian life, a, a terrifying adventure. And in these verses, 4 through 7, Paul gives us a picture. He gives us a description, a, a definition of biblical love, of this still more excellent way. And it's so difficult. It's so different than the cheap distortion of love given by the anti-God culture. This last section of this chapter, Paul highlights the permanent nature of the still more excellent way when compared to the temporary nature of the spiritual gifts given to the church. And look at verses 8 through 10. It says, love never ends. As for prophecy, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes... The partial will pass away. Love never ends. Love is permanent. Love is eternal. The spiritual gifts that the Corinthians so much desired, they were temporary. The gifts are given by the Holy Spirit to the church for the common good, for the purpose of building up the church, to make the members more like Christ. But in glory, when we are like Christ, we won't need them anymore. The gifts will cease. 
but before then. The challenges facing the, the, the church and, and, and specific needs, these will vary. These will be different in different times and different places. And the Holy Spirit provides specific gifts to the church to meet the specific challenges that they face during those times and in those places. And as we saw last week, the, the gifts function differently before the completion of the canon of Scripture. See, the apostles and the prophets, they were providing the new revelation. But now that the, prophet, now that the canon is complete, there is no longer a need for apostles and prophets to give us new, new revelation. We have it. We have Scripture. And these spectacular gifts, the gifts of miracles and tongues and healings, they were given to validate the, the, the prophets, to validate the message of the prophets and the apostles. And again, that's not needed. We have Scripture. Now that the, the canon of Scripture is complete, it is the Bible that we use. The Bible is the one is used to validate a message. Whether or not a message is from God, we test it against the Bible. We believe in sola scriptura. There is no revelation. The Bible is what's used to interpret every sermon. That's why you have your Bibles open, to interpret, to make sure, to validate what I am preaching to you at this moment. And any theology, anything you have, has to be checked against the Bible. Any application is against the Bible. And when this letter was written... The canon was still open. The, bio, the biblical message was still known in part, as we see in verse 9. And that's not meaning that it, was iner- that it was not inerrant, but it was not yet complete. The revelation was still partial. And verse 10 says, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. And the perfect is God's perfect and complete revelation to his people. And when this comes, the, the temporary, revelatory, and evident evidentiary gifts of, of prophecy and, and tongues will no longer be needed, and they will pass away. Prophecy, tongues, and miraculous signs, they are no longer needed now that we have Scripture. In verses 11 and 12, Paul shifts from talking about the change in the gifts to talking about the change in the believer over time. And Paul then gives us two analogies, one in uh, verse 11 and one in verse 12. Verse 11, he says, When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. And here Paul is talking about the changes in his thinking that come with Christian maturity. See, if you've been walking with the Lord for any length of time, you know. You know that this changes the way you think. It matures you. You know him better. You think like him better. You know his thoughts better because you've been walking with him for years. You've been reading his word, meditating on his word, praying his word. You know him better. In one sense, all the problems that we see in this Corinthian church is because the Corinthians are thinking like children. Children in the faith. Children in the faith. New believers, immature believers. They all think the same way. And how do they think? They think like unbelievers. There's really not much difference between the immature Christians thinking and the unbelievers thinking. They think very similarly to the unconverted. And this is exactly what the Corinthians were doing throughout this entire letter. All the problems that we've been seeing because they're thinking like unbelievers. They're failing to show the difference that being a Christian should be in their lives. And the divisions and, and, and the desiring more glorious spiritual gifts, they're acting like the believers. What's in it for me? How can I build myself up? They're looking like unbelievers. But as they mature, they give up these childish ways of thinking, and they, lack, they act like mature believers. And maturity means seeing the spiritual gifts for what they are. They're a means to bless others, not to glorify myself. They're a way to build up the church 
not to enrich myself, not to build up my pride. And as they mature, they will desire not the gifts, but the still more excellent way. They will value and desire the biblical love. And this maturity is, is, is not a one-time process. It will continue for the rest of our lives. We will continue to grow in our sanctification. We will continue to progress and become more and more like Jesus. And our destination is to be holy and righteous and sinless, just as our Savior. And each day, our, our Christian walk, we strive to get closer and closer to this destination. And we'll never get there in this life. But we will get there. And when we are in glory, then, then and only then, will we be perfected. And we see the reality of sanctification and glorification uh, described in verse 12. He says, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So as we mature, as we grow in Christ, we know real things. We know real things about ourselves, but these things are incomplete. These things are distorted. These things are like looking in a mirror dimly. They tell us something about ourselves, but not everything. It's like, it's like we're looking at a, a low-resolution picture of ourselves. But when we're in glory, the dim mirror will be removed, and we will see face to face. The distortion will be gone. See, now we are fully known by Christ, but in glory, we will fully know ourselves and we will know the holiness that Christ knows. Now, we'll never be equal to Christ. We will never be defined, but we will be sinless like Christ. We will know that. We will know so much more than we now know. And we will know so much more about not only ourselves, but about God. And here's the really exciting part. We will continue to grow in our sinless knowledge of God for all eternity. Let's think about that. Each day, we will know God a little bit better than we knew him the day before. And this will go on for all eternity. Constant progress for all eternity. And verse 13 speaks of this eternal state of glory. He says, So now faith, hope, and love abide. These three, but the greatest of these is love. See, in glory, there will be no more need for any spiritual gifts. There will be no need to further build up the saints or build up the church because they will be perfected. We will be perfected. The spiritual gifts will all cease, but faith will remain. Faith will be perfected. That faith will turn into sight. The things that we now hold by faith, we, we will then see, we will then touch, we will then hear, we will smell, we will taste. And hope will remain. Hope is, is basically faith looking forward. And we will abide in eternal hope as we continue to day by day receive more and more grace and more and more joy in our eternal fellowship with all the saints and with our triune God for all eternity. But the greatest of these, the greatest of these is love. Just think about it. When all sin is removed, when all of our insecurities are forever gone, when our stubborn pride has finally and fully been put to death, when we stand amazed in the presence of our Savior and our God, then, then we will be filled with a nearly infinite capacity for love, love for each other, love for the countless glorified saints around us, and most importantly, love for our triune God. As we understand him more, and as we understand him more, we love him more, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. When we look at this description of the still more excellent way, this description of biblical love, we know that we fall far short, so far short of this standard but we want to. When we look at it, we say, I want to do it, but I can't do it. I mean, I, I find that all the time. I, I want to love, I want to do it a certain way, but I fall short. 
But we know. We know that these words describe something that we will be able to do. One day we will be able to do this. One day this will be true for us. And for those of us who are united to Christ, this is the reality. And the charge for us now, the charge is simple. We are to hold fast to this truth. Hold fast to this as we live in this truth, in faith, waiting until that day. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your gift of salvation. We thank you for your gift of sanctification. And Father, it is so difficult for us waiting. It is so difficult for us in this fallen world, in this still, this sin-stained state that we are in. We want to love like this. We want to live like this. But we're not there yet. Father, increase our faith, increase our hope, increase our joy. We, Father, we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.